Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is your second time on, and you are apparently in a very prolific period because you've done, this is now, I've interviewed you about two new books in one year. There's a third one coming next year. Oh boy. Yeah, you've been in, you've been in a groove. Um, So why don't you tell the audience, for those who didn't listen to the last episode, a little bit about who you are and the subject of this book. My name is Ronnie Pontiac, as you've already been told and you can see. Um, I am someone who has made documentary films. I'm somebody who has been in a band called Lucid Nation for a long time. And I used to be Manly P. Hall's research assistant. And I began writing these books based on research that I've been doing for a very long time during the COVID epidemic, during lockdown. Okay. So why? So tell us about the magic of the Orphic Hymns. Well, that is a story that also goes back to Manly P. Hall, because after seven years, he asked me to leave PRS, the Philosophical Research Society, which he had founded, because as he told me, he could see that that there were going to be many deaths just ahead among those that were the core of PRS, and there would probably be a power struggle. And he didn't want myself or my wife, Tamara, who was also his friend to be involved in this. So as he was pretty much pushing us out of there, as we resisted, he did one last project with me, which had some very minor things I had to do for him in a Thomas Taylor Hymns of Orpheus reprint of the second edition that he was having the PRS press do. And And as I was reading this and I was reading what Taylor had to say, and I was looking into the history of the hymns in the library, I was really amazed by how influential they had been throughout European esoteric history. And some of the comments made about them by people like Ficino and Agrippa really caught my attention. So Ficino famously said that there was no magic more powerful than the Orphic hymns. And Agrippa in the three books of occult philosophy talks about, uh, he advises really the reader to research the hymns. And he says, when you use the right circumstances and the appropriate harmony and you have complete attention, it is the most effective natural magic. So that was intriguing. But in 
and grief at losing our friendship with the halls and everybody else that we loved at PRS, but and also at the doorstep of a new world for us, Tamara and I decided to take these hymns and first simplify them because the Thomas Taylor translations were a bit tortured. And the original hymns in themselves are, are rather uh, repetitive and can be uh, dull because the people that did them knew all the correspondences that went with the deities that were being addressed, but we don't. So uh, we added, Tamara and I, touches of, of the cults that we had been studying of each of these gods and then did research where we weren't familiar with them and then created a very early version of this book. And before we shared it with anyone, we decided to perform the hymns as a ritual of uh, honoring and thanking Manly Hall and saying goodbye to PRS and also inviting this new world we were entering of music. We did it in this little apartment in Hollywood at a window. We just kind of uh, crouched there or, or were there on our knees very quietly singing out this window at other Hollywood apartment buildings. And there was a tree there and there was uh, a little bit of sky. And the things that happened as we did them were, were pretty amazing. The serendipity was unusual. So for example, maybe the most dramatic was when we did the hymn to Athena and the great horned owl, which are, were then particularly not common at all in Hollywood showed up and landed on a telephone pole right near our window, sat there during the hymn, and then at the end of the hymn, swooped down right at us in the window and then up above and over. And we thought, wow, okay, that was weird. But, you know, these things happen. Even if you're an artist or a writer, serendipity happens and when you're in this flow of creativity. And and then it kept happening. So we did the hymn to Aphrodite. A couple walked underneath us at just that time. They stopped right underneath the window where we were softly singing to Aphrodite and they kissed. <laughs> there were many other such experiences that by the end of the, this process had us feeling very humbled and and like something something's going on here. And we understood uh, why Ficino talked about the moment that perhaps gave birth to the Renaissance when he realized that he wanted to spend his life translating Plato and Aristotle and, and the Hermetica and all these treasures that had been rescued from obscurity and had been lost to Europe for generations. And, but how could he do it? He didn't have the resources. And he did the hymn to the cosmos in order to, to ask for help from the universe and almost immediately after received a letter from Cosmo de Medici <laughs> telling him that he was granting him a house oh, and a village that would, and a farm that would support the that's, house. That's pretty good. That's pretty right? good. And, yeah, that's yeah. pretty good. <laughs> and he says, please bring your new translation of Plato because nothing, uh, the, what I am most eager about wait, wait, is, is that to one learn in, how hold, to, hold on. Is that one in this book? I want a, yeah. Medici, I want a Medici. Well, actually, no, it's not Medici. under that. No, because it's a it, it's under a different title, and um, um, let me give you that title. I have to think about it for a moment. Well, maybe what I should ask is instead is what exactly are the Orphic hymns? Because I've only vaguely heard mention of them in passing. It's never something that I've I've looked up. Uh, I don't know anything about them. Uh, maybe okay. maybe some of the listeners do, but I definitely don't. So. Maybe uh, do the explain it like I'm five version of the Orphic. Okay, this will be fun. 
it's a complicated answer because first we have the question of who is Orpheus. And then we have the question of what are the hymns of Orpheus? And then we have the question of how are they used? And none of those have clear answers. Those questions all are mysteries wrapped within mysteries with lots of academic arguments ongoing. Some of them having been ongoing for centuries about what the exact nature of all this nonsense is, except that it has had huge influence, not only on esoteric culture in the West, but but I would argue, and the book argues, that throughout the history of the West, almost every counterculture of significance has been inspired by or has embraced the Orpheus mythology, and in some cases, the Orphic hymns. Hmm. They're very, uh, a very powerful catalyst for, for Renaissance, in a sense. or They seem to have proven that in history. And, and reoccur constantly and are constantly being redefined for new generations, which is pretty exciting thing about them. Orpheus, the mystery of Orpheus, did Orpheus ever exist? Aristotle thought that, that he did not. Thomas Taylor argued that there were five people by the name of Orpheus who were all event- conflated by history into one person. So, so but, just to, as a quick note, just sure. to explain it like I'm four, um, are these what time and place are these from? This is ancient Greece, or what was the context? Of this these is another originally? mystery because they they claimed originally, like people thought that Orpheus lived among the Greeks. If you asked them in the ancient world, they would have told you that Orpheus lived in the generation before the fall of Troy. The first reference that we find to Orpheus is around six fifty or so BC, and. This is actually, it's a, I'm sorry, it's about 550 BC. And this is a poet named Ibicos who refers to Orpheus as famous Orpheus. But we have nothing earlier than that. I'm going to change my name to that. I'm going to change my name to famous Jason and just have people call me that, including at restaurants. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) And and then in, in 1962, there was discovered something called the Dervini magical papyrus which is orphic in nature and this is the oldest book known in europe and it seems to date from the 600s so we're we're seeing traces of orpheus as early as 600 bc and we're seeing him written about in writings by some of the great greek authors so there is orpheus in herodotus but there's no orpheus in Plato, I'm sorry, of course there's Orpheus in Plato, but there's no Orpheus in Homer. And that seems like a, a glaring omission. And people have argued that he must, the mythology of Orpheus must be later than the Homeric uh, world, because otherwise, why would it be missing? But other scholars have argued that actually the reason it's missing is because Orpheus as a countercultural figure and whose mysteries and hymns and and what grew up around him was very counterculture was not welcome in the world of Homeric Olympian heroes and the official uh, kind of uh, mythos that supported the politics of ancient Greece. So Orpheus uh, in myth was a musician who we know two myths about. One was that he went with Jason and the Argonauts on the Argo and to go get the golden fleece. And when he did that, he was somebody who could sing songs that would 
calm down the crew when they were angry or, or sad. He could silence the sirens with his song. He would, he would be able to understand what events meant. So for example, when there was an earthquake on one of the islands they visited, he explained that it was the footsteps of Apollo approaching because Apollo wanted to have an altar built there. And everywhere that, that Orpheus stopped with the Argonauts, he left a, a mystery school based around sacred songs. So that's one myth we have about him. The other that we have is the famous backward glance, which is that on his wedding day, he was um, about to wed Eurydice, and she was noticed by either a satyr or by a shepherd who strangely was named after this very positive god of shepherds, that whose name means most excellent. But in this story, he was anything but that. He was he was simply a rapist. And he assaulted her. She broke away. She managed to, to run while he chased her, but she ran into a pit of vipers and she was bitten and she died. Orpheus was, was heartbroken, of course, by this. And he started to lament. And he was such an amazing musician that his lamenting caused everything in nature to stop. And the gods began to weep. Everything in nature began to weep along with these songs of loss. And finally, the gods took action and they told him, go to Hades and beg him to give her back to you. Because if you don't, all life is going to stop. We can't, we can't all be crying about loss all the time. So he actually goes into Hades. He sings as he, as he enters and as he walks through all the spirits, everybody stops. The, the vulture that's feeding on the liver of Prometheus stops. Sisyphus stops pushing his rock. All the ghosts gather and, and listen to this, this beautiful song. And then he approaches Persephone and Hades. And the story goes that Persephone convinced Hades, There's especially the Romans loved to, to depict Hades as being skeptical of all of this. But it was a very awkward situation because, after all, Hades had abducted and raped his wife Persephone. And, and so she would certainly see herself in this, this poor girl who was, who was lost to her husband on, wedding day, on her wedding day. So Hades agrees to send her back, but there's one provision. Orpheus cannot look back until Eurydice has reached the sunlight. And so he can hear her walking behind him and his heart's beating fast and he reaches the sunlight. He walks out into it. He walks out a little further. He doesn't hear her footstep. He's terrified that she's not there. He, he keeps walking. He feels that he for surely he had walked far enough now and he turns to look and he sees her just on the threshold, still in the dark, and she has not stepped into the light. And they can only see each other for a, a brief moment, and then she disappears to him. So he goes to a, a hill in Thrace, and he every morning he sings to the sun as it rises, singing to Apollo. And in some stories, Apollo teaches him the mysteries, and that's why he knows all about the gods and He's somebody who can establish these rituals of purification. And others say that he was taught by his, his uh, mother, the muse Calliope, and by his grandmother, who, who is memory. 
And so Orpheus, these are these are the two myths. And then, of course, that he was torn apart by the main ads because he changed the mysteries of Dionysus. And he certainly, whatever happened there, whatever Orpheus represents, he certainly represents a huge change in the mysteries of Dionysus because they began seemingly as an intrusion into Greece because of how different they are from the Olympian gods. And Dionysus comes in there, and as we see in the great play by Euripides, uh, the Bacchae, that we are complicated human beings. We may want to create a culture where Olympian men are worshipped as the heroes and the warriors of, of the Iliad, and, and everyone is, is supposed to, to be very concerned about the polis and willing to self-sacrifice themselves for the good of the collective, of the city, and, and all of the civic virtues that were inculcated in Greece. And along comes this religion that tells you that you're going to be smearing bull's blood all over yourself after you sacrifice the animal and you're going to, your women are going to run off into the forest and they're going to have these mysteries and you're not allowed to know anything about them. And you are going to, as Euripides points out, have to confront very difficult realities about the human psyche that involve uh, blurs and between genders and and all the things that Dionysus is there playing around with intoxication and sexuality and and all the messy irrational supposedly side of life that that we're trying to to suppress in the Olympian world or or at least put everything in service of being a great warrior and along comes Dionysus and it's really, it's, he's about partying, you know, he's got all the grapes around him. He's got satyrs and nymphs around him. And this is, is also a side of Greece, but so different from, from what Homer is, is celebrating. And so now we have the question of what are the Orphic hymns? Mm -hmm. The origin is very much a question in contention. They were thought to be by Orpheus at one time. There were some early Greek historical writers who claimed that Pythagoras had written them. And there's certainly some kind of strong influence that's occurring between the Pythagorean community and, and all things Orphic. And there are those scholars today who argue that, that the, the school of Pythagoras, and perhaps including Pythagoras himself, created what is really literature. It was an Orphic literature, but this literature was taken up by a caste of mystics or priests who were not unlike the mediums of American history who would go looking into uh, the obit sections in newspapers for notable people who had recently died and would show up trying to, to tell them that they needed their help spiritually. And Plato, of course, talks at length about these, these orphics that he looks down on very much, who go to rich people's houses when there's been a recent death and say, I can teach rites of purification or perform them, and I will save this great person's soul, because without this initiation, there's no way that they're going to make it through the tests of the afterworld. Man, that's, and, a, sle that's a sleazy hustle. It sure is, isn't it? Yeah. And some of them wrote their own books and, and, and wrote the name Orpheus under them and claimed that that's what they were. And so one potential place 
that is held up as as likely and that and it was a popular choice in more ancient writers is in Athens during the era of the tyrants when there was a soothsayer by the name of Onomacritos who may also have been the person who pulled together the Homeric epics. He was sometimes credited for that, who actually wrote them down. And the idea is that he did the same thing for the hymns of Orpheus, which until then, like the epics, had been a purely oral tradition. And he was accused of of blasphemy for tampering with the sacred oracles of Musaeus, which are connected to the whole Orphic mythos and practice. And and so it's possible that this is the, the fellow who did it. And this would be right around the time that, that they were first using, getting that beautiful black and red pottery that, that became uh, famous all around the Mediterranean. And, and, and the interesting thing is, too, that um, when the tyrants were kicked out of Athens, uh, they went to uh, Xerxes to try to convince him to, to conquer Greece. And they were actually there, and Onomacritus was there, when Leonidas and the Spartans and the Thebans and the Thespians, and they stopped the, the Persians at Thermopylae. And it's the last time we see Onomacritus because he was brought to the court of Xerxes to, to tell only the good omens so that the war would happen. And I imagine after that defeat, he was probably done for, but we don't know for sure. So he's, this is one place it may have emerged from. And then this would have been an effort by the tyrant to provide kind of a, an elite religious framework to bring all the gods of Greece into this framework of the hymns. Then we have a possibility that's more modern and, and very intriguing, and we spend quite a bit of time on it in the book. And this is the, the era in Rome when Emperor Severus and his empress, Julia Domna, uh, preserved Rome for a little bit from the chaos that was engulfing it. And this is like third century. And there had already been an era where there was one emperor after another. I mean, some of them only last months and, and terrible bloodshed. It was a time when the weather was changing and food was failing. There was there were crop failures. Distribution was failing. The barbarians were growing stronger after many years of fighting Rome. They'd learned a lot from them. And Rome was growing weaker because it was fighting a lot of civil wars and losing its military in them. During this era, Severus was a very strong military emperor. And Julia Domna was a, a phenomenal uh, cultural influence. So the thing that made it their, their reign difficult was that Severus was half Carthaginian. He was only half Italian and he was half African. And as you can imagine, many Romans were really angry to have somebody they considered a distant relative of Hannibal, the greatest enemy of Rome, now ruling Rome. Uh, to make matters worse, Julia Domna was a Syrian woman who, her name means Julia the Black or Black Julia. And she was a priestess of Baal. And so the Romans were really afraid that, that they could be stuck with an emperor who was a priest of Baal. And that actually wound up happening during uh, that dynasty, just a, about 50 years after the period we're talking about. Now, just, the focus just, on as a, Julia Domna, just as a slight aside, 
Can you explain who what ball was to me? Because I've never heard of a satisfactory answer. Maybe I just haven't been on Wikipedia. But explain ball, please, because this is obviously a name that pops up in the Bible and is considered to be some type of, you know, pre-Yahwist uh, evil deity, but probably in typical biblical fashion was just the god of a different culture. Uh, but exactly. just, uh, just as and a minor aside, and then let's go back just because I'm curious. Of course. Ball... Very interesting. He was, he was symbolized by a big, huge black stone. This black stone would be moved to Rome by the emperor Elagabulus, who was a priest of Baal, and then was married to all the goddesses of Rome. It was quite a scandal. But the this worship of Baal was very ancient. And of course, yes, Baal was a positive god to those who worship Baal. And and they were, at the time of the Romans, what, what the worshipers of Baal and, and the, the culture around this were, were condemned for by Rome, and actually Rome intervened, was that they, they combined politics and religion. So the high priest of Baal was also the king of Baal, of, of, I'm sorry, the king of or the area that is like Syria, Jordan, and, and um, at that time was was sometimes Babylonian, sometimes Persian. It was a constant area that was overrun by conquerors all the way back to the battles between the Egyptians and the Hittites. And yet under this rulership, which was a sacred kingship, all the wealth and, and power that gathered around this king in a hereditary way made them so fabulously wealthy that they were able to hire armies. And in fact, that's how that emperor took the throne because he he paid a Roman legion that his father had had been the inaugurating leader of and and just had more money than the, the emperor himself had. So Rome stepped in and they said, you can be king or you can be high priest, but you can't be both. We're not allowing that anymore. We don't want the wealth of the state and the wealth of the temple to be united like this because this makes you a threat to us. And so they they did divide it. So she came from this very powerful family and, and they were considered decadent for silly reasons. Like, for example, the kings would use parasols because this was a very hot area and and an elegant parasol was a good way to keep shade on yourself and and stay a little bit cooler but this was considered hilariously effeminate and scandalous to the romans where no man should ever carry a parasol so when julia domna had her her salons as we would call them the people that were at these things are amazing because of the influence they would have at these salons, we have Galen, who would be a medical authority for a thousand years, revolutionized medicine by making it much more realistic, and then became this authority. There was um, Philostratus, who wrote the story of Apollonius of Tyana, a kind of a fanciful version of it filled with magical realism. There was Apuleius, who wrote the first novel, arguably The Golden Ass, and also a book about the mysteries. And that, that that is full of that, that's one of the core books that Crowley always recommended to his students. That's all. Is that connected with the Orphic hymns? I mean, I know there's tons of magic in that one. I think it's more connected with Egyptian religion. I mean, it, Isis is at the center of it, and it's also satirical. I mean, there's no question that it's sincere in its its 
adoration of Isis, but it's also a, a wonderful satire on on just human beings and and on the Roman culture of the time, kind of hidden within this the story of somebody who gets turned into an ass and it can only be saved by the roses that are sacred to Isis. And of course, Rosicrucian connections have been drawn. Um, so then also at this were uh, one or two people who would revolutionize Roman jurisprudence and actually established a foundation for law and courts that to this day are the foundation for all European and, and European colony uh, countries, including America. And, and Julia Domna herself was a brilliant legal mind who, who contributed greatly to reforming Rome. She was one of the few Roman empresses that the Senate allowed to, to sit in the Senate at times, and the time she was banned, uh, because she was so useful to, to the proceedings. And she had this deep love of Rome. She felt that the fact that her husband, who was half Carthaginian, and that she, a Syrian woman, could ascend to the, Rome, to the Roman throne because of their merit was proof that the Roman system was worth preserving. And, and so one of the things that Severus did, which created quite a scandal, is he extended citizenship to all tax-paying Romans. So there had been many Romans who were not called Romans. They were not citizens, but they were in the Roman Empire, and they were paying taxes like Roman citizens. And Severus, I guess because he could understand their perspective, he decided to grant them all citizenship. That was another great scandal in Rome because the Romans felt that they were an ethnic type and they were very stingy about awarding citizenship. And suddenly there was this revolution that opened citizenship and the rights under the law to everyone paying taxes. The main reason he did it was because he needed so much money in order to uh, have the military paid enough to, to, to keep it happy. And so he figured... If I give them citizenship, I can probably tax them more. It was rather cynical. But they very well. They it's amazing. The more things change, well. the more things change, the more things stay right? topical. Exactly. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's amazing how many things are similar to our current period between that time and, and now. It's, it's, it is strange. But uh, the other thing that's interesting is that the argument is that the hymns were written by someone who was probably told by Julia Domna to do so, because at that time, there was a great resurgence of all kinds of cults, including the cult of Dionysus. And at the center of this cult were the hymns of Orpheus. So she probably wanted to refresh that religion and to, to finally write these things down. And the format that we have now, the one thing that argues for that idea is the format that they're in a modern scholar has argued that it's perfect for like a drinking symposium because the subjects as they move along like toward the middle part as you as you get into the the two-thirds area it gets into the sexier stuff it gets into the aspects of life that are more sensual and kind of uh, it heats up if you will and then but then as it gets near the end, it starts to close up with some very solemn hymns. And it eventually will take you all the way through uh, sleep to death. And the final hymn is the hymn to death. Uh, 
So the idea is that that's closing time and, and everybody gets sobered up by this, this very uh, somber hymn. And, and that is possible. That very well could be how they were being used. So we don't really know. Um, hmm. and, and then I will say also, and that wraps up this part of our talk about this. I'm sorry it's taken so long to answer your question, but it is complicated, as you can see. So now we have the question of what were the Orphic hymns used for? There were two camps. For a long time, there was a, a strong camp that felt that there was an Orphic church, an Orphic religion that was, a, was there for maybe four centuries in the Mediterranean, was very influential, and was competition for Christianity. The competition borrowed from it ideas like original sin, which is very similar to the Orphic idea that, that all human beings are tainted by uh, our our inheritance of Titan blood. And this is the famous Orphic formula, I am a child of earth and of starry heaven, but my race is of heaven. And so the Titan part of us is the Titans who uh, consumed uh, Dionysus, baby Dionysus, and the divine part of us, the heavenly part, is is actually Dionysus. So we are all the children of Dionysus, sometimes called the tears of Dionysus. And that means that we are all the grandchildren of Zeus. And we, we have to purge the titanic part of ourselves. The Titans, of course, hated the gods, tried to destroy everything the gods built, and just have this angry, vengeful, jealous kind of paranoid demeanor that made them so destructive that even when they tried to do good things, they tended to destroy things. And so the hymns are said to be used in the purification of the Titan part of ourselves, but our lives in bodies are what really purifies us. And when we have sufficiently purified us uh, ourselves, we don't have to live in bodies anymore. But if we fail to do so, we must return over and over again in the cycle of necessity. And, and this is another good example because there's a big argument about whether reincarnation was Orphic or not. It was certainly Pythagorean, but was it Orphic? We're not really sure. It depends on how you interpret each individual item of evidence. You can put things together and say, look, this looks like reincarnation, but you can examine each thing and say, are we really sure this is Orphic? It doesn't blatantly say so. So I'll give you an example of this. It's also a good illustration of Orphic belief. There's a, a bone tablet on which was written life, bios, death, thanos, bios, life, and then underneath it, aletia, truth. But what does it mean? Does it mean that you have a life, you die, and then you're reborn in another life, and that this is truth? Or does it mean that you have a life, you die, and you're reborn into the afterlife? And that's the truth. And is it Orphic? We don't really know. So most of the evidence about the beliefs are, are that uh, kind of gelatinous. And, mm -hmm. and nothing is really cl clear as far as the research. As one researcher put it, it's like uh, Penelope weaving in, during the day and unweaving at night in, in Orphic studies because one new archaeological discovery and suddenly everything gets thrown over. So how were they used? Were they used in the symposium? Sure, makes sense. But then what do we make of Plutarch? 
who says that he and his wife were initiated into the Orphic Mysteries, and he describes one of the experiences he had, which was being introduced into this cavern where everything was dark, and then running in a panic with other people, running and falling, looking for any way out, feeling that you've been entombed in this cavern. And then when the hysteria reached its height and you really felt that you'd been tricked and something horrible had happened and you were done for, suddenly an opening would, would appear and there would, you could see through it fields of grass and flowers and, and beautiful sunshine and people singing could be heard. And so you, you ran out into this open sunlight and you heard the hymns being sung and you were welcomed as an initiate and you were taught various things. And he said that this changed his life. We have other records of people saying they were introduced into a, a cavern, again, a room where they had painted all the horrors of human life, uh, death and battle maiming and disease. And, and you didn't really, you know, we see this stuff all the time, thanks to all our screens, but they didn't see that kind of stuff all the time. Hmm. And to see it all in one place must have been kind of overwhelming. Huh. And then you were told to sit on a stool and and practice phronosis, which was you put a death shroud on yourself. And then so sit in the death shroud in the dark now and think about mortality. So what was that? I mean, that sounds like real mysteries were going on there. Mm -hmm. and, and so we don't know, we don't really know what these things were used for until we get to the time of Ficino. And this is around 1462 when Ficino <clears throat> has the experience where he's suddenly given this place where he can translate, <clears throat> excuse me, all this amazing material. And when he's doing this stuff, he's constantly singing the hymns of Orpheus. He has a, a lute um, on which the, the figure of Orpheus is painted. He sometimes does it in a sacred context according to the hours and sacred correspondences. And sometimes he just plays it for his friends or just for himself. He's a huge inspiration to everyone. Out of this comes the, the Platonic Academy of Florence, and which inspired an amazing, uh, I mean, really is the heart of the Renaissance. And so he inspired, for instance, a composer who then went and did an opera about Orpheus that Leonardo da Vinci did all the sets for. He inspired Pico della Mirandola greatly. And Pico wrote the oration of the dignity of man on the dignity of man uh, under the inspiration of, of Ficino and, and all this amazing knowledge that Ficino was, was bringing about. Pico actually wrote uh, at one time, you know, he's explaining to readers that the uh, the names of the gods that Orpheus is singing to, these are not demons that are deceiving people. That these are divine natural powers that are in the world, put there by the true God to help us. And, and, and it's wisdom that's going on here, not evil. And so it is, brings this, like breathes life into European culture at that point. And the hymns, are starting to be used by individuals, right? And so Agrippa, again, is saying, uh, why don't you read these and, and try them out? Because this is the most effective natural magic. And, and they continue to have that kind of influence. Why did, he, so, why did he say that at the time? 
Pardon? Why did Agrippa say that? I mean, with Agrippa, well, we're talking we're talking about somebody who over who looked through every single magical tradition available at that time. So why do we have any record of why the Orphic hymns stuck out to him so much? It's a good question, and he doesn't explain it, as far as I know. Although I would love to have Eric Perdue's comment on this, I I, I can't say that I'm anywhere near the scholar that he is on, on that subject. But I didn't find any reference that explained that comment. Hmm. Now I can I can try to answer it, you know, just speculating, and I will. <laughs> and and that is first dependent on what we mean by magic, because I think that if what we mean by magic is, even though Ficino provides the opposite example of what I'm about to say, if what we mean by magic is bending nature to our will, getting the things that we desire, um, manifesting. Uh, what we feel is right for us. I don't think the hymns are are that kind of magic. They maybe they are. I mean, people will try them out, and maybe they will let everybody know. Um, I, I know people are using them now, and and our versions of them. And I hope that that we'll get back reports that that tell us about those kind of things. But I don't know anybody who's used them for that purpose. And in, historically, they don't seem to have been the favored uh, thing to use for that. And I think what they're more about is the Pythagorean idea of tuning the soul. And it's you're tuning yourself to nature. So each hymn represents an aspect of nature, an aspect of the human psyche or the experience of life. And we are tuning ourselves to the divine wisdom in each aspect of life as we experience it. And we find it in all of nature. We find it in even the worst challenges of our lives. There, there are reasons that these challenges liberate our soul, that bring us closer to self-realization. And, and so this tuning process, bringing ourselves into harmony with nature, with this great uh, wisdom and reason that's at the heart of nature. And by doing so, we are, we are lifting ourselves out of that titanic ignorance and lashing out and into the harmonious uh, Dionysus part of ourselves, which is divine. And, and so the hymns were used for healing. Uh, we hear that Proclus, the Neoplatonist, uh, would sing them when he was so ill at the end of his life that he couldn't remember the names of his friends, but he could remember the words to the Orphic hymns and they seemed to quiet his pain. Ficino would sing them to heal himself and to heal people from emotional and physical traumas. And certain hymns were prescribed for certain purposes. And so they, they seem to be a kind of practice. And this was one of the arguments about why they were not an actual mystery school. Because you see, if you went to the Eleusinian mysteries and there was lots of theater and lights and color and, and there were speeches and we we're told all kinds of things happen, including very probably some sort of psychoactive substance being imbibed. And but that was it. You, you had some amazing experience that changed your life and convinced you of the afterlife and the gods. And it woke you up to your true self, hopefully. And then you, you, you hope to live up to that. But you were done. In the world of Orpheus, that was just the beginning. You had to live, now you had to live this way. You had to be a vegetarian. You had to practice nonviolence. You would never sacrifice an animal. That, that was just wrong. You would, you would use flowers or honey or wine to please the gods. 
because Orpheus argued, how could you please Apollo with blood and guts and murder when Apollo is the god of music and light? And so, although ironically, one of of his totems, of Apollo's totems was a wolf. So there was a dark side uh, that maybe would have accepted the slaughter. Uh, but in the world of Orpheus, that world was over. And so what we're left wondering is, is, for me at least, is why was the influence so powerful, not just in the esoteric world, but throughout the world of the arts, in sculpture, in, in opera, in all kinds of music, in painting? Why do we keep seeing over and over again in literature, in poetry, Orpheus returns, Orpheus being redefined, and, and these mysteries were music, sacred songs, nature, and our souls kind of come together to create a, a matrix in which an awareness of the divine can be born. Hmm. Interesting. So <clears throat> it really sounds like these were part of an, an initiatory system, which is super interesting. Um, and I think probably even the, the priests who were there to, to profit right. off of, uh, the death of, of notable people were people who would teach initiation and had, they, they would not only initiate the dead as it were, or purify them, but they would do so for the living as well. And right. they would, they would also sell you books. And, and I should mention that part of what made Orpheus so popular in this as this kind of private religion that Plato describes is because books were just becoming available. And it's a very early form of them, but it's, there's no accident that the Dervini manuscript is, is one of the, is the earliest European book because mm. there were so many Orpheus books. It reminds me of the Rosicrucian pamphlets, right? explosion of books and, and people are signing them with other people's names and Orpheus's name. And it, it's really fascinating. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. What, what I was going to, what I was going to say is it sounds like it was part of an initiatory system, but just like every, just like everything in the magical world, I think that probably what it meant originally is radically different from what it meant in the Renaissance and what it meant in the Renaissance is probably radically different from today. So what I wanted to ask you is let's move this up to the modern day and what um approaching it from like a modern mystics perspective why did you decide to do that what is what perspective did you bring to it and give us the why you know i think it's like give give the audience that why why become engaged in this in 2023 and and maybe maybe tell some stories about because uh, I assume you you test ran some of this stuff like you were talking about earlier so i'm i'm curious about that as well well, I mean, it's funny. It goes way back. Um, when I was a kid watching reruns of Star Trek and the Apollo one came on and humanity was moving beyond the need for Apollo and Apollo's lament at the end when he spoke to the other gods, for some reason, I mean, I'd never been exposed to any stuff like that, but I, I really, the Greek gods just, that, that leapt out to me. And around that time, I created this, I took a bunch of notebook paper and I created this giant scroll of all my favorite monsters. Nice. And I kind of feel like that's what my books are. 
if you think about the American metaphysical religion book, right, it's like this huge scroll of all these these wonderful monsters in our history. And in a way, the gods are monsters, too, or amongst my my monsters on the scroll. So I, I think I was tuned for this this activity somehow. And then I found Tamara, who somehow also managed to get really um, moved by the Greek myths in a world that had no interest in them at all, just by finding the right book at the right time. And, and it was a very private interest for her. And under Manley Hall's influence, of course, that that's blossomed into some serious studying. And we were in, introduced to amazing books like was that giant set that uh, Cook wrote about Zeus, which you could spend your lifetime reading about just just Zeus's cults. And so we were really into that. And through the PRS library and the college libraries that I had access to, uh, I was studying um, ancient Greek. And I, I just kind of was so enraptured with the the mysteries surrounding this subject. And in Tamara's case, she was fascinated with the correspondences. So she started collecting these notebooks filled with every correspondence that she could find associated to every God that she could find. And when we went through, as I described earlier, the departure from PRS, they were like, it was comforting to us. It was something that he had just published, Manley Hall, and and we had found each other partially in this interest. And so we we did those things, had those uh, weird experiences that I described, and thought, okay. And, you know, we didn't really keep on it. Like, we didn't do this every weekend for the rest of our lives or something like that. We experienced it. We were amazed by the experience. and And we continued to study. Fortunately for us, there was a gigantic explosion in academia of Orphic studies. I mean, it was just revolutionized. Hmm. And it's they've just they're still absorbing the Dravini manuscript. And this has been a wonderful time for studying all things Orphic. And when we saw these amazing visions, this new kind of vision of it that that was opening and we realized how few people who are interested in this stuff, but there are some among our friends, actually know about these things. We thought we should try and share them. And then we thought, why don't we take the hymns that we did back then and really do it? Like, we're going to go back to the Greek. We're going to, we, we had done that the first time. We're going to do it now with all the extra scholarship. We're going to go back and look at all the new evidence on correspondences. And we're going to to bring these correspondences into the hymns. And then we try to make each hymn like a sigil so that every single word was carefully thought out and chosen and that the numerical ratios and just looking at everything that we could to make them these objects of beauty so that they could stand alone as literary poems and didn't if you didn't want to use them ritually, but if you use them ritually, they would work with music, and they would be simple enough and evocative enough that they could they could really speak to 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 the heart. And so, we did have weird experiences as we did it. And and I think my favorite was um, when we finished the final draft to send into Inner Traditions for publication. So this was it. This was the final, final of the book. We 
we were reading them. We read through all of them. And when we finished, now we have lived in, in the canyons that we live in for about 20 years and, and have heard all kinds of screams and, and laughter and just the weirdest sounds. We heard what I can only describe as Dionysian like screaming and laughter. It was really loud screaming by women, loud laughing satyr-like screams by men. Never heard anything like it around here. It was in the middle of, of the COVID lockdown. So it was especially weird because uh, everything was very quiet. And, and we just kind of thought, wow, that was weird. And then we, we realized where it had come from. And that's what really, really made us stop and think. We had a neighbor who had lived next door all her life. And before she passed, she would tell us stories about this neighborhood she she lived here when there were only a, a handful of houses in the whole area. And she said that in the 1960s, she and her friends, the other kids that grew up around here, would take a dirt road trail, a dirt path down to Sunset Boulevard. And they would go see Jimi Hendrix at the Whiskey or Tyrannosaurus Rex. And, and But they would stop every time they did halfway down at a palm tree where they would read poems and drink wine and they called themselves the Dionysus society. And that is exactly that. That's where the sound came from. What do you, what do you mean? That's where the sound came from was the area that she had pointed to. Hmm. So it's all just a bunch of, of little serendipitous moments but the way that they seem to cluster around these things is very interesting. And so we didn't, you know, partly we, we, we wanted to share this because we thought there are some wonderful translations. There's a wonderful magical translation uh, that's very detailed and very accurate. Um, the great authority on the Orphic hymns, Athanasicus, who was very kind to us and, and helped us. Uh, he has the you know, very formidable translation, very usable. And he also eliminated some of the repetition and the boring aspects of it. But nobody had done what we did, which is bring the correspondences that the priests would have known and, and allow us to enjoy having that kind of intimate sense of, of what these correspondences are for each deity. Because that gives you such a different perspective on them. Um, so they're really literary creations. And I always say, you know, I mean, Tamara and I committed blasphemy of the highest level um, right there with Onomacritus and doing what we did. We even made up a hymn to number because the hymn to number was lost. But we were just trying to create this kind of magical artistic creation, thinking about people like um, Austin Spare and and just like letting letting a little bit of the unconscious operate in there and making sigils out of the hymns in a way that would work for our time uh, because the way that they, they were put down on paper in ancient times was only really understandable by specialists. Hmm. Interesting. So have you uh, had test subjects? Like, have you given these to people to try out and what, what has their experience been like? I have, we have heard from people. Um, we have heard from people on the pagan kind of witchcraft side and we've heard from people on the um theurgistic side 
people who are influenced by the Neoplatonists and are seeking unity with the divine through ritual. And so far, both of this, I mean, we keep being told this is my new favorite go-to. So they seem to be working. They, 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 I often hear that they create a profound sense of presence in some way that mm. when you, when you speak them, there's like a deep silence at the end of some of them for people. So we'll see, but, but they, people are loving them so far that who are using them. So that's really nice. And I haven't really been told any like unusual, uh, synchronistic stories. I don't want to pry. I mean, we felt yeah. funny about sharing any of this, you know, I mean, it's very personal when you have those kind of experiences and it sounds idiotic. I mean, you know, we tell people we weren't using drugs. We weren't drinking. Right. We actually got, did all the Orphic stuff. We even stopped eating meat and beans and, and, uh, but it still sounds like a couple of, you know, hippies or punk rockers, whatever you want to see us like, um, you know, they were probably, you know, <laughs> stoned from before and, and have these weird experiences, unless you've had the experience. Yeah. I mean, if, if somebody yeah. else told me that they did the hymn to Athena and an owl landed and then swooped down the per, I would just be like, you're making it up. Well, I think anyone who's done a, you know, significant amount of magic in, in any serious way has tons of stories like that. So, and, exactly. and it, it is fascinating. People always expect the uh, special effects budget, but when, when things actually manifest, it's through what's right in front of your face. In my experience, I mean, we're already getting so much information um, that, that stuff, that stuff, I mean, I don't doubt it at all. That's a, a super, quite a, um, what would you call that? Not a, it's a little cliche to say wink from the universe, but confirmation that you're on the right, right. track, perhaps. Talk yeah, it's validation in a way. Super interesting. Talk about the counterculture aspect, because you mentioned that this has inspired countercultures and outside of, I don't know, the Jean Cocteau movie or something. I, I can't think of examples. So, Oh, it's great. Yeah. This is really fun. Um, so let's see, where do we start? We start with that Orpheus and, and and the culture that grew up around him was about as counterculture as you could be for the time. And I would argue that they were maybe the first counterculture. So here's why. So first, let's look at Orpheus. No, actually, let's look at Olympian Greece. We're eating meat. We're sacrificing animals. We're idolizing Odysseus and, and the warriors of the Iliad and the Odyssey. <clears throat> we are... We are people that, that believe that men should be very macho and strong. We keep women locked up at home for the most part, unless they're Spartans, which was quite different. And, and we have a, a very kind of traditional culture where the individual is, is expected to serve the state, whether that's military or politically or, or in the decisions that you make in your businesses. It's all about the good of the polis, of the city. And, and you were also supposed to serve the temple, serve the gods. And there, there are strict rules about what the holidays are and what you're supposed to do. And everybody does it. And that's your civic duty to be religious in this way for the cult that goes with that city or the cults. And everyone's expected to, to be that way. Along comes this Orpheus stuff. And it's, it's lampooned viciously by Aristophanes, hilariously. And, and now it's no, no more sacrificing animals because that animal may have been your mom in another life, someone that you really, really cared for. And so how can you do that? And also, as we already said, you really think Apollo wants you to kill an animal and there's blood everywhere. It's disgusting. Apollo is a god of music. Why don't you sing a song to Apollo? That's what Apollo likes. Well, obviously we're leaving an agrarian warrior 
uh, mercenary culture of the Mycenaeans, of the Achaeans, and we're moving into a real civic culture. And this new religion, in some ways, fits it. In other ways, it didn't, because it was also nonviolent. So I'm supposed to go be a warrior. Well, not if you're working for Orpheus, because the whole thing is don't kill. And beyond don't kill, you should also be preparing to die. You are, you are trying to get off of this terrible wheel of necessity. So, yes, if you're following the way of Orpheus, you are not going to want to go to war and then potentially be brought back to suffer in the wheel of necessity again. You are going to be somebody who's not very competitive or very concerned about excellence. And, of course, those who worship the Olympian gods were all about competition and excellence. So this is a counterculture, and Aristophanes writes about it that way. He's, he's in the clouds. He's talking about people in a, in a way that, that, that makes them sound like these kids, you know, they, they don't care about anything that's important. All they want to do is get out of responsibilities. They, they don't want to raise children because all they're concerned about is dying, and they, they think that this world is a punishment. So why would you want to bring souls into this world of punishment? very counterculture. Now, as we proceed forward, I would suggest that as, as severe as the rule of Severus was, that it was a counterculture imperial dynasty, not just because we had a, a Syrian and Julia Domna who was encouraging all these, these cults and, and this alternative literature, things like the Golden Ass and the Life of Apollonius of Tyana, uh, but also because we have in that dynasty the emperor Elagabulus, which is like half elegant and half abulus. That wasn't his real name, though. That was the name of one of the gods that he was the high priest of. And Elagabulus was was really counterculture. Like he was somebody who scandalized Rome by by doing things like having parties where only one-eyed people were invited or having a party where only bald men were invited or having a party where there was only white food or only green food or having a party where he dropped so many flowers from the ceiling that some guests smothered and died or having a party where he had only obese men and really tiny benches for them to sit on. <laughs> this guy sounds like Even a lot of fun actually. I know he was he was also the inventor of the whoopee cushion, according to scholars. He actually invented the whoopee cushion. So but this is a counterculture emperor. And sure enough, he was slaughtered by the Praetorian Guard because they just couldn't handle what was going on. Uh, it wasn't Roman. And and when he put on a toga, it was it was all wrong. He was flouncing around in it, very uh, gender fluid. And the Romans were very displeased. So there again, counterculture in the midst of what may have been the, the moment in time when these hymns were written down. Now, as we move further in the world of Ficino, we've got the Catholic world that, that didn't have access to most of, of Plato and, and certainly the hymns of Orpheus and the Neoplatonists for centuries during the Dark Ages. And then we get Ficino in 1462 doing all these translations 
and opening up this world of ideas that inspired so many people. I mean, Agrippa, I was going to say, may have talked about how powerful the hymns are solely based on the authority of Ficino, because Ficino was considered such an amazing authority on all of this. And so, and odd, by the way, to consider that Ficino had been a Catholic priest and that many of the people practicing the Orphic stuff at this era were, were devout Catholics. And they didn't see any problem because there were so many similarities. Again, the Titanic taint is, is original sin and must be purified. We have a, a God who wants peace and who believes in love. Uh, I should say a teacher, really. I mean, Orpheus was eventually considered like a god, but let's say like Jesus, beginning as a teacher. And and so this teacher was somebody who was teaching peacefulness and, and not war, as most of the other deities had. And this was about even being nonviolent to animals. And and there was a lot of, of elements in the Orphic approach that, that Christians found similar. And, and there were Christians, there was even a, an anonymous friar of the Franciscan order who wrote, Jesus is Orpheus, Orpheus is Jesus. Um, there have been other writers who, who said, uh, Eliphas Levi said, that Orpheus and Jesus and Buddha, that they're all, they were all being enlightened by the same God. They're all basically the same thing for different cultures. And which is, a, again, rather a countercultural point of view on this stuff. And certainly the Renaissance was a counterculture, especially in this explosion of interest in paganism that began there and breathed so much life into Rosicrucianism and then the whole grimoire movement and, and all sorts of magical experimentation and exploration. Because after all, when we're looking at John D, who's talking to angels, the callback is really to uh, Iamblichus and, and his attempts to communicate with the gods and with higher levels of spirits, uh, you know, daemon. And, and so the inspiration, in a sense, is similar to the Orphic hymns. We're addressing the superior deity. Some have even argued that the various incenses were prescribed less for the scent, which was usually frankincense, myrrh, storax, the ancient storax. And, and the, the smoke was going to actually allow you to see these gods manifest or to receive messages. And that certainly isn't something that's been confirmed or disproven. But it became this great inspiration to magicians and, and people who were exploring astrology and alchemy and trying to find similarities in, in all of these things. So in terms of culture, it starts to come up uh, with the troubadours. Um, they call him Sir Orfeo, and he the, the backward glance is very romantic, of course, and so it fits in very well to their culture of being separated from the, the woman that they love, but trying to do this noble thing through song to elevate society. He's compared to King David, and it's said that Orpheus studied with Moses at one time, and as he's, he's accepted by the Jewish community in Alexandria, and those ideas are embraced. A book is written called The Testament of Orpheus Claiming This, and it's a very popular and respected book in educated circles in Christianity for centuries. 
they do believe at that point that Orpheus was was trained by Moses. Other scholars argue that he was trained by Hermes Trismegistus, Trismegistus. And so um, there's this tradition set up that's older than Christianity on the pagan side, and Orpheus is in it. Um, you know, all the way to the kind of respect I should mention that, that Orpheus received when Socrates lists those who he wants most to meet if he is going to go to the other world when he dies. The first one he mentions is Orpheus. Orpheus is the first one that, that Socrates wants to talk to. So now as we, we come up in the Rosicrucian writing, there are Rosicru- there are Orphic elements, and Orpheus is, is mentioned here and there. There are similarities between structure, between some Orphic writings, the Theogony particularly, and some of the stuff in the Rosicrucian manifestos. There's a, a play that's performed, a mask that is performed by Frederick Palatin, the ruler, really, that the Rosicrucians put all their hopes around, in which Orpheus figured very strongly. And the play was a, kind of about uh, getting away from the power of the Catholic Church. So we had you know, a strong Protestant revolution going. We had the Catholic Church was so powerful and was trying to reclaim all of Europe. And then here's this upstart between the Renaissance and then a little later the Rosicrucians and, and, uh, and all of this, this explosion of ideas um, coming from that, that, that esoteric root in Platonism and the Neoplatonists and, and these ideas about being able to communicate with the daemons and the gods. We come up a little bit further and we find that in the world of opera and music, Orpheus was hugely influential. There were dozens and dozens of operas done. And one of the great revolutions in opera occurred when, I think it was Gluck, um, he did an opera with a happy ending for the, the tragic backward glance. So this time, Orpheus saved Eurydice, and it was this huge sensation, and it, it started a whole new artistic trend in Europe for cheerful endings, and, and a lot of tragic stories were rewritten with happy endings at that point. And this was considered radical because the older generations, thinking that the classics were being betrayed and mutilated by the young generation, right? So again, more kind of countercultural stuff. And Orpheus is, is appearing in poetry pretty much right down the line, a huge influence um, on Dante. And Dante has Orphic elements throughout the Divine Comedy. And, and then there is all the way up to Rilke, whose famous sonnet to Orpheus, a great masterpiece, he says was inspired by Orpheus, the presence of the spirit of Orpheus, uh, brooding over him and kind of haunting him in synchronicities, as we've been talking about. But even down to, I was lucky enough to uh, be able to talk to a friend really of Tamara's and mine, but uh, Randy Rourke, who was a secretary for William Burroughs, an assistant to William Burroughs wow. and to uh, Ginsburg for years. And I asked about what were their feelings about Orpheus? And it's included in the book. Randy talked about how he heard from both Alan and, and from Burroughs that the, the whole idea of the Greek myths to them were antiquated. And they, they were almost uh, 
disdainful of them because so much bad English poetry had been written about them, about the Greek gods and about these classic concepts. And, and so that Burroughs had said that, that all of this Greek mythology, Greek mysticism, uh, it's just early science, early psychoanalysis. It was their best efforts to understand the world. It was as close as they could get to science. It's all outdated and useless. You wouldn't go see a Spartan surgeon, would you? So why would you listen to somebody from that era about pretty much anything? But then he said, except for Orpheus, because they were very moved by a scene in the Cocteau film where a poet listens to the radio and turns the dial to find the words for his poem. And this, to them, was was something that, that really spoke to them. And, and so Orpheus kind of slipped by their, their disdain for the ancient Greek myths to such a degree that Kerouac's first book, which was published posthumously, was called Orpheus Emerged. Hmm. And then in the 1960s, there was a, a band called Orpheus that was a terrible ripoff of the doors, um, but they were, they were popular at the time. Even today, we have uh, bands called Orpheus, and I think there's a melodic death metal band that's called Orpheus. And there's a, there've been like successful operas like Hades town. I'm sorry, a Broadway plays like Hades town. Not too long ago. That's basically a, a reworking of the backward glance and of the Orphic visit to Hades. And I could just go on and on. I mean, there there's, there's so much of this stuff, sculptures and writing and, and people, people turning to it to, to express their own, uh, evolving senses of society. So um, I'll say this much more about that, that, that Eurydice, who starts out as this voiceless, nameless presence, and, and also I should add, her name means Eurydice, wide ruling, wide judging, wide, wide ruling justice, is probably more the name of Persephone as the ruler of the dead and the judge of the dead than befits who it's supposed to be. So, but in the original versions, we don't know who she she was or what she looked like or what she thought of anything. She's just this victim and then this absence. And then over time, she evolves. Virgil depicts her as kind of an Italian wife, a Roman wife. So when he turns around and looks, she she has just enough time to berate him for a moment. And to say, you, you know, basically, you idiot. Why did you turn around and look? We could have been happy together. Now look what you did, that kind of thing. And, and then she develops later into the idea that many male writers said, well, but she was happy to die because by dying, she liberated Orpheus to sing. And that was the destiny involved here. And Orpheus was able to do great things. So it was her privilege to have her life sacrificed to liberate the amazing soul enriching talent of Orpheus. And then a little later they were saying that that Orpheus, you know, really should have understood that he was never going to actually have Eurydice that that he was just going to be able to sing about her and and that's who he is and he should have been content to do that. And then he, he never would have had to have gone down to Hades. And maybe that was hubris in a way. 
And Plato agreed with that, by the way. He thought that it was really wrong of Orpheus to do that. And he suggested that Hades had sent a phantom to just kind of fool Orpheus as a joke because he should be humiliated. Um, and so a big change happens with the uh, kind of esoteric poet H.D. She was divorcing a very narcissistic husband, and she wrote this wonderful poem about it in which she describes Orpheus as a narcissist, as somebody who doesn't love her. Orpheus didn't love Eurydice. Orpheus loved being seen as someone who loves Eurydice. He loved the loss because it made him look so good and made him so irresistible. And so he was really only in love with how he appeared thanks to her loss. And then a little bit later, as the 20th century unfolded, the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st, Eurydice gets this complete makeover from not entirely all female poets, but from many female poets, including a Pulitzer Prize winner and many very well-known poets. And it's really quite wonderful because she she turns into somebody who is, is happy to be away from him. Um, there's one hilarious poem where, where she's in Hades happy to be free and he shows up and she says something along the lines of, and then who goes knocking on the door? The big O himself with a poem to pitch and me for the prize. And she, it's, it's just this funny look at, at Orpheus as somebody who's really just into showing off more than anything else and ends when she's walking behind him and she's thinking to herself, I got to get away from this guy. I, I don't want to go back and live with him. What am I going to do? And it occurs to her that if she compliments the song, he's going to not be able to resist turning around and looking at her. And so sure enough, she says, oh, Orpheus, that song you sang for Hades, which is the most beautiful song I've ever heard. And he turns around and says, really, do you think so? And she's like, got away. Really funny way to look at it. So that she now has this great voice that, that is talking about Orpheus in a way that he has never been perceived before in history. There's even one version, a different poem where they talk about, you know why he turned back? Because he's managing her. She's a woman. He couldn't trust her to be able to walk by herself and, and get where she needed to go. He had to make sure she was doing it. This kind of uh, satirical look at, at, at gender uh, hostilities uh, now has finally seeped all the way into Orpheus and Eurydice. And I think it's it's kind of liberating and exciting to see that happening. But we're mentioning it to show that it continues to be this powerful archetype for people. And so I think that's also part of the reason that when we saw this, we wanted to share with people, Tamara and I, that, that look at the influence here. And we do show you in the book, uh, in the introduction, just how far this goes. And there's much more than we, we are able to talk about here. It's, it's really quite dramatic what an influence it's been. But usually, again, on countercultures, on, on those who are looking at, at the dominant culture and seeing that, that there's another way to live, and they somehow feel emboldened by this Orphic mythos. Interesting. That was going to lead me into my next question, which is, how do these... How do these hymns or this system, how do they most speak to modern people? I mean, are, are there resonant themes with 2023, with what you see people going through? Um, 
people's ideas of spirituality in 2023. Um, where are those overlaps and, and where, where are the handholds on this material that are going to be most useful for modern people? Okay. It's one, I think what makes them useful is that they are rather a profound look at the psychology of being human. So the same predicaments that were faced by people then are often faced by us now. Predicaments that have to do with, with death, that have to do with, with sleep, that have to do with dreams, that have to do with uh, how do we get by in the world in a way that doesn't cause harm to ourselves or others? How do we, how do we live a good life? How do we, uh, what does it mean? I mean? What do we ask for when we approach deity? Are we, are we merely asking for the things we want? Or do we want what the deity wants us to want? Do we, do we want to have a higher wisdom helping us to understand what the right choices are? How do we make our families and our societies uh, functional and creative and happy and, and also protect them from the elements that, that would, would be their enemies, whether it be disease or elements of culture that wish to exploit and subjugate? All of those, those questions are in the hymns, and every hymn is addressing them in one way or another. Now, in some ways, it's very obvious. So when you're talking to Aphrodite, Aphrodite is, is a very appropriate goddess for those who are interested in love and in romance and beauty and art and, and such. So if you, if you want to bring more of that into your life, you're going to be tuning to Aphrodite through the hymn to Aphrodite. So they work in that way. But also in the approaches to the deities, we see what, what is being asked for. And this is often the formula is asking for a blameless life. That's not an easy thing for a human being to achieve. So how do we live a blameless life? And in these illustrations of, of speaking to the gods and describing their stories and asking them for help, we are receiving hints about, about how to live this good life and what is important. And so it's, uh, it's really quite, uh, like for instance, in the hymn to Ares, uh, it's hard to think, you know, what, what is the good thing about Ares, who is the god of savage warfare, not the god of war as strategy, the way that Athena is. Uh, he's the god of, I mean, though Athena loved uh, Achilles, but you would think that, that Ares would be the god of Achilles because Ares doesn't care how many Greeks die once Agamemnon has offended him, right? It's, it's just pure fury and ferocity. And so um, the, the real question here becomes, um, what do we do with Ares? And in the hymn, it, it, it says in so many words, Aphrodite is having a party or Dionysus is having a party. Why don't you put down your sword and, and come and, and enjoy yourself, right? So it's, it's speaking to that, that will to, to dominate and the will to slaughter. And it's saying, uh, you know, come and, and, and be harmonized by the divine so that you can enjoy life so that you can have pleasure in your life and see beautiful things instead of surrounding yourself with suffering and causing only anguish in the world. And it's, it's also a way of, of looking at 
at the predicaments of our society. So here we are. We don't know who to trust at this point. AI is going to make this into even more insane where people can essentially find whatever they they want to create or someone else has created for them to justify almost any point of view. Mm -hmm. And there will be really no way for most people to tell what's real and what isn't anymore. So where do we go from there? It's kind of an exciting thing because in a way that is the human predicament. I mean, you know, our words fool us into thinking that we have some control over all this and we know what's going on. And we do have enough that we can keep things going more or less, but, but there's a whole lot of mystery wrapped up in, in our everyday lives that keeps busting out and paying uh, a visit to us. And so this brings me to the idea that what I really think applies in these hymns today is the love of nature that is throughout them the respect and and the love of nature and the descriptions of nature and the way the correspondences of the gods reveal these beautiful harmonies in nature are really a moving experience. And I think what we need more than anything now is to feel reconnected, to, to rediscover a sense of the wonder of nature and a respect for it so that we can do everything possible to preserve as much of it as we can for future generations. And I think the hymns provide that in a big way too. And, and then finally, I think, I mean, believe me, we didn't have any delusions about, you know, that this is going to turn into a gigantic successful Orphic venture. You know, we know how obscure all things Orphic are and, and what makes them even more difficult is, is, as has been ably, I hope demonstrated during this talk we're having is how complicated and mysterious all of it is with almost nothing being being certain so and yet this is a is is kind of the human condition that's going to be amplified as we go forward so it seemed to us that why not take this thing that that had so much to offer in terms of the renaissance has been such a constant source of inspiration and solace to human beings who are trying to do unusual things, daring things, whether they be artistic or philosophical or magical, and and put them into this this carefully pondered and carefully uh, crafted form and passed by many, many people, I should add, you know, as we were putting this together, so many editors, academic people, magical people, I mean, just all sorts of people trying to get every bit of input we possibly could get to make these and to make the information in the book as helpful and as accurate as possible. And and then let them out there and see what happens. Kind of this great experiment Hmm. because they seem to be something positive in an alchemical sense. A little fragment of the philosopher's tone seems to be somehow in these hymns and the impact they have on people. And it seemed to us that now more than ever, we really need that. So I mean, one of our slogans is we feel like we learned from Manly Hall respect for all gods, all spiritual traditions, more than respect, uh, eager curiosity about them all. And we, I think, really feel like we need all the help we can get at this point. And what are the gods? We can have a whole discussion about what are we talking to? What caused the synchronicities? Are they actual gods? 
I'm sure there are Christians who would argue that they're demons. There are people who would say, my God, man, that's an egregore you're toying with, and it's manipulating <laughs> reality and for its own purposes to increase its own collective thought form. Wait, why, why is that bad? <laughs> well, that's, yeah, exactly. The Jungian perspective, you know, maybe they're archetypes. People have suggested that the gods are aliens. So yeah, all of these literal. are ways to look at it. Uh, Robert Anton Wilson's reality tunnels, right? Each has value onto itself, but isn't absolute. And none of them are really accurate. Right. They're all just uh, estimations or attempts to gain some fuzzy uh, idea of what's going on there. But we try to look at it and see what is the impact. And we were convinced after looking at the history that the the impact of these things is very positive. And, and we were also convinced by the kinds of people that were, were respecting them. So again, not only Ficino and Agrippa, but these hymns were an influence on the Golden Dawn. They were an influence on Crowley. Crowley, of course, wrote a huge poem about Orpheus that he wasn't very happy with, but it, it was his great effort to make an epic. He wrote about Orpheus in almost every single edition of the Equinox. And Alephus Levi was very taken by the story of the backward glance, maybe because of his own unhappy love life. But he often wrote about, about meaning and wisdom gleaned from the ideas around Orpheus. And so we thought, let's get something else out there that is uniquely uh, suited on a literary side for not just ritual use, but for enjoyment as well. Because in our opinion, the existing translations, um, the the academic translation that is state of the art by Athanasicus is what it is. It, it can only be what the document allows it to be. And the footnotes do provide you a lot of color and insight. And I highly recommend anybody interested to get them because that is the bedrock study. But it isn't the most beautiful experience reading them. It wouldn't be that easy to put the song um, certainly it wasn't created with that in mind because it couldn't be. It had to be academically accurate, and it's quite a brilliant work. The other available translations are wonderful with lots of supportive material, but they're expressly intended for ritual use and are very complicated in that sense. And so from our point of view, we wanted to provide a different experience, and we can. That's the beauty of it. Because we, we did have access to all these academics and, and people shared their books with us and their articles and directed us in the right way. So that was, that was a beautiful, a huge help to us. But we're not academics. See, so we can do that. We, we could sit there and do something that any academic would be attacked for, probably, yeah. which is change the hymns, make up a hymn. Um, just take our own opinions about what aspects of cult to weave together into each hymn. And as rogue scholars, as amateurs, we can do that and just walk yeah. through the, the historical records. That's no one of the, uh, that's one of the, one of the, the, there, there are several, but it's one of the good points of, uh, our little uh, alcove on the world here. It's like society may have zero regard for us, but we can do whatever we want. So for somebody who's a modern person, uh, you know, some of any degree of practice uh, of experience, how would you recommend people begin working 
like if they get your book, uh, I assume you, you talk about it in the book, but if they get your book and they start working with the hymns, talk about how somebody can tap into that and what you recommend. I think it's definitely to each his or her own. It can be taken at the most serious level, in which case I would recommend that you buy all the translations and that you look at each hymn through all the translations because they're all different prisms and that you gather up the materials that you need. You can even find ancient storax being made in tiny batches by people specializing in this area. And, and you put together a real experiment where you, you, you either do them all or you pick out your favorites and you pick the right time of day astrologically. You just go whole hog into it. Even as a beginner, that will take you down so many paths. There's so much learning there. Um, and it could be a really enjoyable experience. On the other hand, I don't think there's anything wrong with settling down with a cup of tea or coffee or a glass of wine and and opening up the book at random and reading what attracts you or reading the gods that you know about and like first or uh, just approaching it in an innocent way, the way you might pick up a card from a tarot deck just for the fun of it. You could do what we did and pick the hymns that move you, especially if they're concerned with a certain part of your life. So let's say you are very concerned about romance and you want to have the wisdom of the gods to help protect and guide you. And so maybe you sing that hymn softly out the window and see if anything interesting happens. It doesn't, doesn't matter if it doesn't, it, it may simply make you feel a little bit better. And, and I think that they are really open to, to being treated as, as simply a, a lovely experience of reading uh, a certain version of ancient poetry or you can go into them with the idea of really trying to dig into why Agrippa and Ficino recommended them as the most powerful magic. And one of my one of the things I really miss about Los Angeles is that um, you know any esoteric system or religion you get interested in, there's probably a temple somewhere in Los Angeles with people actually practicing the modern day system who may be immigrants or or not, um, and that's just a it's kind of like that in New York, but it's definitely like that in Los Angeles. I definitely miss that. And I was just thinking as you were saying that, is there any surviving tradition now in Greece or elsewhere of people still worshiping the ancient Greek gods? And as I'm saying that, I'm pretty sure that the other Golden Dawn, the right wing group in Greece, uh, uh, does so for nationalist reasons. But outside of that, um, I'm just wondering, it's like, cause I'm, I'm hearing you talk about these and I'm like, I'm just thinking like, man, it would be awesome to go to like the equivalent of a Hindu temple, but for Greek gods. Wouldn't it? It would be wonderful. It'd be cool. Well, yeah. it's, most of it was wiped out, um, of course, under the, the dominion of Christianity and the, the newer practices are kind of revivals. Uh, I know there's been an effort to revive Olympian religion in Greece. And the Orphic thing is a little bit more private. It always has been. So, for example, Angela Voss, who's a, a really wonderful scholar um, on the area of Michael Ficino and, and the hymns and Platonism and such, and also a wonderful uh, musician, was involved in a consort that, that you can actually hear on YouTube. I'm trying to remember the name of it. But it's, uh, they took several of the hymns they have somebody who 
uh, speaks them, Thomas Taylor's translation, and then the hymn is sung in ancient Greek. That's really beautiful. What is it called? Mar Marina, Marinus Consort? I'm, I'm sure if you put Orpheus and Consort or Orphic and Consort in the YouTube search engine, you'll find it. It's really quite beautiful. So there are efforts like that that happen. And I know people like a friend of, of mine, of, of Tamara and my, actually a bandmate of ours, who is a, a really wonderful composer um, who was slumming with us as a musician <laughs> and who is now uh, doing choral music, is working on some of these hymns. Hmm. And I also spoke to somebody who works with the new uh, domes that are being used for art installations, these wonderful kind of portable venues, these big domes. What is, I don't know about that. What is it like, are those like geodesic domes that are portable or something? What is that? Kind of, but they're, they're really, um, what they're about is the ability to project images at 360 degrees all around you. Is this a VR, and, VR camera thing? Yes, that's part of it. And, but you can use it in different ways. You don't have to use it that way. It can also be used for almost like a gallery kind of, of approach. Um, and it's been used for live music and for, for lectures and, and all sorts of things. But I've been speaking to someone who's very active in that and who has said uh, multiple times how much she would love to see the hymns of Orpheus in that kind of a venue with some kind of a theatrical production attached to it so you could actually experience them live that'd be great so so maybe something like that will come together and i i definitely think that that they will will get out there and and inspire people as they have have before at least that's our hope and comfort uh people as well because even the hymn to death for example as we mentioned how each of the hymns finds something positive the hymn to death doesn't mess around i mean it it says this is going to happen. And it's a very somber hymn, but it reminds us that, that we should be, when we are faced with death, using that realization to live better lives, to, to enjoy life more, to live worthy lives. And, and so it, it takes everything from the most positive, beautiful experiences of life to the most frightening limitations that life presents us. And it finds good in them and reminds us that there's wisdom in it. And it's ultimately a ritual of remembering because the big Orphic sin is forgetfulness. When you're told about that formula, I'm a child of earth and starry heaven, that formula is important because when you die and you get to the other side, Almost all the souls go to drink water because they're parched when they get to the other side. And they, they go to the water that's most readily available. And that is forgetfulness, the water of Leith. And it's, it's something that just causes a lethargy of the soul as it sinks down into Hades and becomes just a sort of little shadow of nothingness. And if you don't drink that water, if you go by a certain tree different in different traditions. Sometimes it's a sycamore. Sometimes it's a palm tree down in Egypt. You have this formula. You're stopped by a guardian. The guardian says, what do you think you're doing over here? This road is for the heroes and the gods. And you say, I'm a child of earth and of starry heaven, but my race is of heaven. And so, you know, I am parched. Give me water. 
from the fountain of memory or the lake of memory. And then you are given water from the lake of memory and you remember that you are immortal. You remember everything about your life. You don't fall into forgetfulness. You don't fall into the cycle of necessity to be reborn. And so there was actually, we talked earlier about ideas about what was going on during the mysteries. There was an argument once made by a German scholar that the Christian cross may have originated from the Orphic variety of a cross to which he claimed the uh, novices or the uh, would-be initiates were tied, the neophytes, and they were spun. And this was supposed to be the, the lesson. They would tell you, this is how your soul feels as you fall in forgetfulness through space and in, in, into the next life that you're going to live. And you'd be staggering, trying not to fall down. And there's no evidence of that at all, but it makes a lovely story. But it does have a lot to do with that sense of ignorance and forgetfulness uh, and the falling that is the essence of, of sin, in a way, in the Orphic religion. And remembering, which is also at the center of the whole idea of Plato's uh, educare, right? You know, education is drawing out, not putting in. You're you're trying to get the soul to remember, and and here we are in these bodies. They are uh, opaque, and they they block our awareness, and we forget everything about ourselves, and and we purge this from ourselves using these rites of purification and remembering. So as we go through each hymn and we reach each part of nature and each part of the human experience of life, we're tuning it up, we're purifying it, and we are restoring balance in the world, starting with our own little corner of it. Do you feel like you went through a initiatory or some process of change while working on this book? Like, how do you feel having completed it? I guess you're... you're, you're we're doing, you're still, well, I guess you're still doing promotion, but how do you, how do you feel having completed it versus when you this first entered your consciousness to do? It's very different. And, and the hymns, I mean, they've been, it's been a part of our lives in so many different parts of our lives and have been such a joy whenever we've revisited them. And there's always been that, that sense of, of, gravity and silence when when a hymn is performed or even just read out loud and we've always appreciated that and felt that it was it was nurturing to our souls and so yes definitely i mean i feel that speaking for myself that when i started them they, it was all it was like learning foreign languages or learn or meeting people from other countries uh becoming acquainted with these gods and then reading all the scholarship about their cults and and what was associated with them and and then seeing it changes how you view things in nature because you you start to kind of see it that way as as though everything has divinity within it and speaks through symbols of that divinity whichever divinity is is responsible for that area of life and eventually that softens into a kind of trust in nature a trust in life and it's, it's ironic to me because it's exactly what manley hall was talking about and was trying to teach us 
And he would always say, he always had people who would come to him and want to be his, his students. He would he'd come to them and they'd come to him and say, be my guru. And he would ask Tamara and I to screen for him. And he wanted us to screen most of those people. And he always told us to tell them that he told, he told us to tell them that nature is their teacher, that their own lives are their teacher, uh, other teachers. And then he kind of said the same thing. I mean, I got to sometimes sit there when he was talking to people who came to him for help. Um, it was very kind of him to let me understudy in that way. And he would say the same thing. They would say, you know, please be my master. And he would say, I'm not your master. Nature is your teacher. All the wisdom that you need is there. All the wisdom you need is within yourself, within the experience of your life. Everything is here to teach you. And that's what the hymns finally brought me around to in a, in a big way, was wow. being able to feel that in a very solid, connected way, that, that everything here has wisdom behind it. It's really, you know, the dedication at the beginning of, of his great work was, was to the rational soul of the world, right? And, and so the rational soul of the world is a faith that nature is, is here to collaborate and to teach. It isn't simply some form of, of um, obstacle that, that we exploit and dominate and that hurts us if we're not careful to protect ourselves from it, that we can have this interaction with nature that is very moving and that was uh, very well known by the indigenous people of America. So my hope is that, that not just the hymns of Orpheus, but a lot of the things that are coming out now, um, indigenous religious stuff and all kinds of pagan things that are bringing about this love and respect for nature and this desire to, to be taught by nature and to find the wisdom in it and to preserve rather than to exploit. Uh, I hope that, that these hymns can have a small part to play in bringing about a shift in consciousness that will help us to do that. And I also think that when we're in a world where we're overwhelmed by new technology and it hasn't even started, I mean, you know all too well, Jason, I mean, what the next 10 years are going to look like in terms of the change that's being wrought by this new tech. And I think that that we will need, the, I mean, to me, it's so comforting to have these hymns that predate all of this. And yet they're talking about the predicaments of human life. They're talking about the beauties of nature. And these do continue into this new world that we're going to be living in. And we forget, we, we fall so into the electronic side of it uh, that we forget that nature's still there, uh, the, all the normal human predicaments of life, the simple things, love, death, health, uh, living a worthwhile life, um, having, you know, the kind of, of uh, legacy that we want to give to the world and to those that we love. Those, those don't change. Yeah. So each of these gods is also an idealized uh, view of, of humanity and of nature. And so it helps us to, to see, I think, in that light. It's really beautifully put, and just the way you've kind of described it practically in the last 10 minutes or so it makes it sound very, very relevant. Um, and I was thinking last night, actually, I was reading, I can't remember who it was now, but I was reading up 
poem from like 1600 uh, in, in, in English poem. And it was talking about the inevitability of death. And um, I think at this point in my life, I, I just resonate. I'm thinking I resonated with what you said about um, how human humans don't really change. And it's the same themes over and over again. And like, that was very comforting for me. And that's the first time I've really experienced that where it was like, you know what, like, um, I don't need in this moment. It's like, I don't need any information. I don't need knowledge. I don't need any practical anything. It's just like the fact that somebody in 1600 had the same problems as me, like that's comfort enough. You know, and it's like, it just, because it's so easy, particularly now when we're so isolated, whether it's because of, you know, we were very isolated during the pandemic, but for, with technology and things like that. Um, uh, and I want to be careful not to globalize my experience to everyone because I'm always on the computer and not everyone is, but um, it's so, I feel like it's so easy now for people to forget that uh, their problems are not just their own. You know, it's like, we, we all have these problems. We're all going to face death. You were talking about, you know, frustration in love or frustration in life, things like this, or, or I love the word you used earlier, predicaments. So yeah, we're always ending up in predicaments. Like everyone is. And that was just like, it was just like, that was all I needed. I just like, just to, sometimes just to know that it's not only this feeling that you're not alone. It's just that like, cause I, I, I relate that to reading a writer who is you know, describing something that you've experienced and then you're like, you feel less alone, but it's not just feeling less alone. It's realizing that literally everyone has the same problems <laughs> or the same problems. Mm -hmm. Very comforting. Um, mm -hmm. uh, just things I was thinking about as you were talking, maybe if you'll be so kind though, uh, to, cause I guess we're at the two hour mark. Do you have a favorite hymn and would you grace us with a reading of it? I usually don't, but I'm kind of in the mood, okay. which is weird. So I like to do them in a in more um, private and uh, organized circumstances. <laughs> I don't usually read them too casually, but let me find. I think since since you just said what you said, we'll go right to the hymn for death. Okay. All right. So this is the the hymn to death. You reward all with a somber wreath of asphodel and parsley, the flower and the herb of the cemetery. You direct the path of mortals. Your absence gives the sacred gift of time. With your perpetual sleep, you break the hold of bodies on souls, undoing Earth's strong bonds. You take from us all what we hold most precious. Deaf to begging and pleading, you execute necessity's verdict, which no one escapes. We honor you. Lead us away from the wheel of deep grief to the meadow of truth. Liberator of the ripened soul, revealer of our secrets, inspire us to love life. 
Solid. Well, I have nothing to add to that. Thank you very much. That was very, that was, uh, um, yeah, I feel like I shouldn't even be saying anything after that, but tell us more about where we can find the book, where people can find out more about your work and follow you online. Okay. Uh, the book is, uh, available from inner traditions on their website. And it's always nice to support them because they publish all kinds of wonderful, weird books like this. It's also could be available from your local bookstore. If they don't have it, they can order it very easily. And it's at all the online retailers, if you prefer that. Um, and it is, I think, in libraries. I, I understand that it's in a number of libraries. If it's not in your library, you can request it. And I think your library will be able to get it. And as far as myself, usually the best place to reach me is on Instagram, where I'm just at Ronnie, I'm sorry, at the Ronnie Pontiac, because somebody else beat me to Ronnie Pontiac. And then I think you can just search my name and you will run into all sorts of different things that I have worked on. And that includes film and music and writing and my other book. All right. Anything, any last bits you want to make sure the audience knows or understands before we... We wrap up for the session. I just want to encourage everyone to explore your spiritual heritage because we're so incredibly fortunate to have the wealth of the world's spiritual heritage available to us at a time when we need it most. Yeah, I agree with that. We do need it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ronnie, for coming back on the show. And uh, what's your oh, what's you so the much. what's the you're working on a what's the book that's coming out next year? Um, that is about Rosicrucianism in its historical context, oh, looking nice. at what was going on politically and based on brand new research. And oh. it's another, it's really, you know, in a sense, my books are three books on counterculture. It's it's almost a trilogy. Nice. The first one is is about American metaphysical religion, the ultimate spiritual counterculture in America. This one about the Orphic Mysteries is all about counterculture that I co-wrote with Tamara. And then the Rosicrucians, I also see, based on this new research, is very much a counterculture, uh, in some ways resembling uh, the typical beats and such, you yeah. know, college students with professors who introduce them to all kinds of um, uh, radical ideas, and then they, they create things that go off and start uh, adventures that they never dreamed would happen. So it's, uh, it's really all about counterculture. Very cool. Well, you'll definitely have to uh, drop me a line when that it's out. When that's out, I'm looking forward to talking about that. Great. We'd love to. All right. Talk to you later, Ronnie. Bye bye. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M A G I C K dot M E, my school for magic meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.